so good to be together once again in the study of God's Word. Take your Bibles and let's go to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 for the remainder of our time today. And uh, as you know, we're just hanging out with the disciples, really, and just walking with them as they serve the Lord and alongside of Him. And as ministry unfolds with the Lord Jesus, it, it becomes more and more apparent We resonate with this, but it becomes more and more apparent that there are a lot of things about the role that Christ has, what He's come to do, what the Messiah and the Messianic kingdom looks like, the role of the disciples. There are are many things about all that that they're getting more and more confused about. They're not settled yet. They have to grow. They're thinking more about earthly interests than heavenly ones. They're often having their minds in things that are petty rather than transcendent. And so, as the disciples continue to be at times confused about those things, Jesus has to bring some lessons home to them. You remember they, they held a false notion about the Messianic kingdom in, in the sense that Jesus was going to come, he was going to go to Jerusalem eventually after all this Roman around the countryside, and he was going to deal finally with the Roman Empire and bring back the sort of the political and sociopolitical vindication of, of, of Israel. And they were confused about that. You remember last week, notice verse 44 of Luke 9, let these words sink into your ears for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they didn't understand the statement. Having been concealed from them by their own ignorance as well as by the Lord's own mercy because frankly they could mess up their theology until they had dealt with the pride of their hearts and their unbelief as we saw with the encounter with the demon-possessed man. Matthew records in Matthew 16, 21, that from that time, this particular time here, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and that he must suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter takes him aside and says, Lord, forbid it. That will never happen to you. Just confused. Thinking more on earthly interests, and the Lord had to say that to him. You know, Satan has grabbed a hold of you, Peter. Get behind me. You're not setting your interests on the things of God, but you're setting your interests on yourself, man, the way man views things. So they continued to miss the heart and soul of Jesus' reason for coming to live among us, to go to Jerusalem and to die so that we might have access to forgiveness. We might have a substitute. They also were confused about the power that was on display, and sometimes they actually used it as sort of a badge of their own superiority among the nations. They still were prejudiced, and they would at times be really zealous to harm people whom God was reaching out to. As we'll see next time, they, uh, they are not merciful at times, but judgmental in their prejudice. And what we note here in the text before us this morning is that they still had a massive problem with their own self-promotion and the struggle with petty jealousies, envy, and a sense of their own significance. They had been chosen, yes. Not of their own doing, not of their own merit or worthiness, but they had been chosen and they at times would interpret it as if it meant something worthy about them. Peter, James, and John were sort of the inner circle, and then in, in consecutive groups of three, you notice in the Gospels that each group is, is not as intimately acquainted with all the ministry instruction that Jesus gave. 
In the eighth chapter of Luke's gospel, verse 51, when someone was ill, Jesus went in there with the family and invited Peter, James, and John in, and the others had to stay out. We just finished with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, and there were Peter, James, and John, separated from the other ones and revealed. The glory of God revealed to them. They need some lessons because this gets difficult for them. It often led to condescension toward one another, and there was a tendency toward resentment and pride and jealousy. And they need lessons here because Jesus is about to make a turn in his ministry, in the course of his ministry. Luke begins to mark it out in his gospel that a turn is happening. Jesus has been in the countryside. He's been proclaiming. He is now going to turn toward Jerusalem and start heading in an accelerated way in that direction. And he starts to have a change in the way he instructs. It's more urgent. It's more direct. It's more reproving. There's an acceleration in his desire to get to Jerusalem. He talks about it more often. His countenance, according to the terminology, is even beginning to change. His tone is beginning to change. Everything about him is immovably focused upon arriving in Jerusalem to do his work. Notice verse 51, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Or literally in the verb there, he, he established his face in that direction. It was in his countenance. It began to be in his tone. He knew his time was near. And notice it says, Luke says he was thinking about his ascension, which means he was thinking about the whole package, his humiliation, his death, his resurrection, and his ultimate exaltation. It's on his mind. It's on his heart. He can only think thoughts after his father at this point. And he would like it if the disciples did the same. And Luke says that Jesus kept reminding him of these things. In chapter 13, verse 22, he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. Chapter 13, verse 33, I must journey on today, tomorrow, and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside Jerusalem. It's all about Jerusalem. I've got to get there. There's a work to be done, a final work. While he was on the way to Jerusalem, Luke 17, 11, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. At one point, chapter 18 indicates that he took the 12 aside and said to them, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and all the things which are written by the prophets about me are going to take place. That's where I'm headed, guys. I need you to think. I need you to focus. I need you to get your heart right. I need you to get your mind on the right things. Ministry's at stake. Kingdom purposes are at stake. You can't any longer be the distraction that you have so often been. Things are ramping up. And he knows what's going to happen because the disciples are going to crumble when they get there in the face of the persecution and the Lord's suffering. And there, after that, they're going to be given the full mantle of gospel ministry and have to take it to the remotest parts of the world. They're going to be the starting point. And, and while the Lord is astoundingly patient with them, he continues to expose the self-absorbed thinking of this group of men. They are chosen. They're his torches. They're the ones. But he has to reprove and instruct them because their ideas are backward and their convictions are wrong and they're getting wrapped up in the wrong kinds of priorities. And so they needed to become better 
at identifying the pride of their own hearts and going after it with a vengeance. And so that's what happens in these next five verses. There are two ways that the Lord hits them in these next five verses, from verse 46 to verse 50. The first is with respect to the definition of greatness in verses 46 to 48. The second is 49 to 50 on narrow vision. We might say it this way, 46 to 48 is this, greatness is next to smallness. Greatness is next to smallness. And verse 49 to 50, narrow vision stunts usefulness. It stunts usefulness. We could say selfish vision. Now, let's just bring us up to speed. You remember, they just got off the mountain, three of them anyway, with Jesus. You remember what happened up there? It was just an inconceivable mountaintop experience. The glory cloud came down. They were in the middle of it. They nearly passed out at the whole event. Jesus pulls back his flesh. They see the blazing light of Christ, and and they go to the ground, and in utter fear, they're terrified, and the voice of Almighty God says, you need to listen to him. They come down off that experience, and what was going on? Last week, the nine that were left behind were supposed to be preaching and proclaiming the gospel, and they got into a scrape with the scribes because they didn't have the power they needed to have. Jesus said, look, you faced off with a demon, but you weren't dependent upon me. You were, in a word, he was saying you were self-sufficient, feeling your oats, and he rebuked them. This kind comes out by prayer and by self-discipline in the comforts of life. You should have been faithful to those things and you, with real faith, could have, could have cast them out, but you had little faith. And so the other nine are wrapped up in their own self-sufficiency and, and getting a, you know, a humiliation because of it. According to Mark's gospel, they went from the bottom of the hill down to Capernaum, and on the way, they got into a discussion. Notice how Luke puts it. An argument arose among them, verse 46, as to which of them might be the greatest. So on their way from there to Capernaum, they get into this discussion, and they start arguing about who would be the greater. By the way, the, the, it's a comparative verbal idea here. So the idea isn't greatest. They're not saying, am I preeminent? above everyone in the universe, they're not arguing that. That's that's obvious. What they're saying is, how do we rank amongst each other? What's the pecking order? Who's most significant in and amongst us? How will the world see us? How does God see us? Where do I rank? I bet I'm the highest. I bet God sees me as the most. That's the idea. This is a discussion about rank. The outranking they have in mind is their own sense of themselves before God, how useful an instrument they are in terms of their own greatness and significance, and how much better they should be viewed in the eyes of those around them. That's the idea here. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, how in the world can nine of those guys have just been humiliated for their lack of faith And then the other three just came off the mountaintop experience, scared out of their wits, nearly passing out. How come they're not coming down more humble? How could the 12 of them go from that, a rebuke from Jesus about the lack of faith, and on the way have a several mile discussion about how they perceive themselves as outranking the other? We're shocked by that. But it shouldn't shock us because it only takes a moment to get agitated and fidgety and nervous and convicted. 
because all of us resonate with that same thing. That happens to us. Listen, aren't we supposed to be right now in evangelicalism this great this great movement of people who understand the grace of God. Oh, gospel grace. Oh, we're all together for the gospel. We understand it. We're all reformed now. The soul is on steroids. That's us. Oh, yeah. Really? I mean, in the early church, Acts 4, 13, when they saw Peter and John the pagans recognized them as having been with Jesus, though they were uneducated, unsophisticated men. What did they notice? Character, humility, usefulness, right? So here we are over 2,000 years later after the beginning days of usefulness and Peter being recognized as having been with the Lord. And what is this hyper, wonderful, doctrines of grace environment producing? in our midst. It's true, we have this great outpouring of kindness from God as thousands of young people are drawn to the gospel and we're singing more than ever songs that we've written about our unworthiness to have Christ and our unworthiness to have his forgiveness and we're reaching out with the truth, proclaiming salvation to the next generation and you would think that hours and hours of emphasis on our unworthiness to be saved would lead to the very strong aversion to self-promote. Nope. Afraid not. The church today cannot get over itself. How can that be? Same way they came down from a mountain experience and should have been humbled to the dust, and same way some were humiliated because they lacked faith and rebuked publicly, and yet still on the way to Capernaum couldn't, couldn't resist talking to each other about where they rank. I mean, today we have bifurcated ministries into little subcultures. And we reluctantly welcome others from other little subcultures, but really deep down we don't like them. We have a secret disdain for them. And we make petty comparisons all day long. Oh, the old versus the young. The bound up versus the liberated. All regarding preferences. The unattractive versus the cool. Oh, I would never go to that church. It's not cool. I would never go to that church. It just doesn't have what I like. Even styles have become symbols. Have you noticed? Even facial hair is more of a symbol, not a style. I mean, it's all about who I identify with. And there's nothing sinful in and of themselves of those things, but it's when we want them for significance. They become fads. We're together for the gospel at a conference, but we try to outmarket each other every day. What is going on with us? We tweet great things said about us and when someone else notices that someone said something great about us, we retweet that. We publish things that no one is asking for. We send selfie pictures to no one who, who knows us. Listen, beloved, we are in danger of talking a lot about grace but pursuing our own personal greatness in the eyes of others at such a level that it flatly contradicts what we say about the doctrines of grace. And that is precisely what Jesus is dealing with here. If you are unworthy, then that's going to reflect itself in your life if you believe it. Unworthy means unworthy. A recipient of divine grace does not become the recipient of a trophy of his own worthiness of that grace. Grace, by definition, means you understand your need for it. 
And that's why Jesus is ramping up the discussion here because he's trying to get the guys to think about the task ahead. And so they have this argument. And so I've, I've entitled this, Greatness is Next to Smallness. And you know that true greatness here was first debated. An argument arose among them as to which of them might be the greater or outrank the other. And you know how it rose among them. It's an interesting verb. It just means it kind of cropped up. Well, you know how that happened. On their way down to Capernaum, hey, guys, Peter, James, John, can you tell us what happened on the mountain? No, we're not allowed to speak about it. <laughs> what? Are we not disciples? Were we not chosen? I mean, while you guys were up there having a sack lunch and some prayer time, we were down dealing with demons. Well, I'm telling you, we can't tell you. I don't know why Jesus didn't invite you. Maybe he just doesn't like you. You know, But he certainly likes us because he keeps inviting us places. Right? I mean, you know how it happens. That's exactly how it happens with us. How does that guy get that kind of blessing? How does that person have that kind of popularity? How come those people seem to have it all and I go through trial after trial after trial? That's exactly how it happens. Walking along, comparing themselves with others, feeling jealous. That's how it is. And sometimes it's a result of already having failed, right? When you fail, what do you try to do? You're like a caged animal. You try to deflect by picking on everybody else. So these guys down at the bottom, they had a little faith. Jesus rebukes them publicly. And on the way, they're probably trying to find some way to deflect away from their own guilt. So in order to save faith, they start picking on, they're saving face by picking on the other guys. That's how it happens. Or maybe they're trying to live the glory moments of the past. You know, when, you, when you're not doing too well in the present, what do, you, what do you do? You start to bait people to compliment you on the great things you've done in the past. You open up the trophy case, look at that. See what I did? Why? Because you're uncomfortable with, with what's going on right now in your life, and you just don't really want to admit that. That is how the mind gets self-absorbed. That's how the heart becomes jealous and petty. We take our eyes off Christ, off the kingdom agenda, and we begin to compare ourselves with others, and we try to parade our prowess in front of people. Mark's gospel says they arrived in Capernaum, and it's interesting, Jesus, uh, after giving them a lesson on not causing undue offense, and you remember he had the little drachma taken out, or the shekel found in the fish. He was teaching them not to give undue offense, and he performed that sign. Well, then after that, Jesus then asks the disciples, according to Mark's gospel, hey, what were you guys discussing on the way down from the mountain? And the text says they wouldn't answer. Well, of course they're not going to answer. Why? Two primary reasons. One, they knew it was wrong to argue about that stuff. Jesus had told them many times, this isn't about you, it's about me. I chose you, you didn't choose me. You're not significant. I'm, I'm raising you up to do my bidding. And by the way, the world's going to hate you. This isn't about your reputation or your prowess. So they knew it was wrong to discuss those things. They felt guilty. And I suspect they didn't answer for a second reason. That's because... Can you imagine if he says, so what were you guys discussing? Oh, we were arguing about who's the greatest. Could you solve that for us? Yeah, well, I'm the greatest, number one. Number two, what, what are you talking about outranking one another? What are, you, what are you even talking about? They didn't have to answer. Jesus knew 
But I'm just telling you, he asked them. He asked them, and the text here in Luke says, Jesus knew what they were thinking in their heart. Clearly, you didn't have to be omniscient to know that. Look, he's walking along, they're talking behind him, and there's this little scuffle, and maybe one of them kicks the dirt with his sandal, and they're talking to one another. He knows that trouble's afoot because he knows the human heart. But the Spirit often willed for him to exercise who he was in his omniscience, and here he knows their heart, Luke says. He knew what was in the deepest recesses and the darkest places. And when the the disciples didn't answer Jesus' question, he sat them down. According to Mark's gospel, he sat them down, and he told them that if you want to talk about greatness, you're going to have to talk about being a servant, right? Right? He'll be the greatest among you, will be a servant of all, right? Mark 9, 44. Uh, Mark 10, 44, rather. So there you have it. He is going to be the greatest, going to be the servant. So Jesus sat him down, and he tells them that, at which point they then ask the question, according to Matthew's gospel, who then is the greatest? So that's where Luke picks it up. Luke doesn't include all that because Luke is just trying to get to this lesson which is slightly different than the one the other gospels are teaching. The other Gospels are emphasizing a lesson that's slightly different from the one that illustrates true greatness, which Luke is going to bring out here. But that's the chronology. They get there. Jesus says, what are you arguing about? They don't answer. He knows their heart. He sits them down and says, hey, let's talk about what it means to be really great in the kingdom. You need to be the servant of all. And when they hear that, wait a minute. Wait, the greatest in the kingdom is a servant? Well, then what was all this for? Why did you choose 12? And how come our names are known? And how come we're traveling around with you? And isn't the Messianic kingdom going to recognize that we sacrificed all to be with you? How can you say greatness is next to smallness when all we've been thinking about is why you chose us? And that's why they ask, well then, who is the greatest? How do you become great then in the kingdom. And Luke moves over those details to go right to the object lesson. Notice, true greatness was debated, but now it's illustrated. Verse 47, and he took a child, and he stood him by his side, and he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Now, before Luke drives home the point, before Jesus drives home the point in Luke's gospel, you've got to stop right there for a second. This is very interesting. As Luke is recounting the circumstances, he takes an emphasis that is, is what Jesus does here, but it's different than what Matthew records. Matthew records that Jesus talked about servanthood and used the child to illustrate humility. And that's true. That's a part of this illustration here. But basically, Luke is emphasizing here, when Jesus brings the child, he's emphasizing that you're willing to welcome lowly things and lowly people. You're not thinking about outranking anyone. You're willing to associate with the lowly, go after the lowly, reach out to anyone. Why would Luke emphasize that? He's a Gentile. Of course. Humility's involved, as we'll see in a minute. The idea of coming like, the, like a little child in humility is an important part of the lesson. But the welcoming aspect 
is, is repeated in these verses. Notice, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. It's, it's repeated over and over again. This is the idea of being, a, being one who reaches out to anyone. You're not worried about where you fit in or where they fit in with respect to you or whether you can associate with them or not. Jesus takes a little child. That's the word here, a little child. This is a, this is a youngster in the house there. And he calls the child over and he brings the child by his side. And I, I assume it's somewhat of a formal physical gesture because he's about to illustrate how he reached out to, to someone who someone else would think doesn't even qualify to be in the discussion. It's a child. He doesn't rank. A child doesn't rank. A child largely doesn't know he doesn't rank, doesn't care, he doesn't, not sophisticated enough to think that. It's a little child. They don't even think about that, things like that. And it is someone that the disciples would think, well, I'm, I'm in ministry, I, I'm, I'm more sophisticated. Uh, a child? Why would you talk about receiving a child? That's the whole point. Welcoming that which is lowly and unsophisticated and doesn't think about rank. Matthew says that Jesus also emphasized the other side, that you must come like a child or as a child. And so we see two things here that represent or illustrate greatness. Number one is that you must be unassuming. Unassuming. Matthew says Jesus said this, these words, unless you are converted and become like children, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So humility or being unassuming is part of this idea of being great. And Jesus included it in the conversation, though Matthew is emphasizing that side of it. When you come to Jesus, you come like this child. You're open. You're unassuming. You're, you're um, unsophisticated. Children, Jesus is implying here, are an illustration of vulnerability. They're an illustration of, of uh, childishness. They're an illustration of unsophistication. They don't know there's a ranking. They don't see a ranking. They see an adult calling, calling them over, and other than those times in their rebellion when they're just trying to, you know, have desires out of control all over the place, basically they're vulnerable and they're small and, and they're afraid and easily brought to, to the sense of greater vulnerability. This is a child. You know, when we disciplined our kids when they were little, sure, they were defiant, sure, they, they thought they could be self-reliant, but if I locked them out of the house and put them on the front porch at six, seven years old, it's only gonna be till the beginning of dusk and it's over, contest over. They're weeping, they're crying. I never did that, by the way, moms, don't worry about that. <laughs> they're weeping, they're crying. Children get lost in a store, what happens? All, it panics. The child panics, why? Vulnerability, unsophistication. They're open. They're, they'll even meet a stranger and tend to be wide-eyed and gullible unless parents put a filter in place. They might have even some natural fears, but they'll get past those given enough unsophisticated moments of comfort. They go back and forth. They're all over the place. They're clumsy. They don't know it. They're childish. They don't know it. Their arguments are easily contradicted, and they don't know it. We just spent Thanksgiving. All my grandkids are around. And I mean, it is just absolutely amazing to me. I'm sitting in the living room. There's all these adults. We're talking about spiritual things, and they're coming in, and they only have either the mode to sleep or wide-open voices. 
and they do not know, they don't have a sense of context. They don't know the context. And I just marvel at it now. I mean, I just look at it and think, wow, you know, you, they don't care what kind of noise they're making, how loud they're making it, how often they're making it, whether it's screaming, they don't care. To them, it's unsophisticated, it doesn't matter. To adult, if an adult does that, we, we put them over here in, in a corner. <laughs> And we say, you need to get some sophistication. You need to learn context. You need to learn to be sensitive. Because people don't like that. Kids don't, kids don't know any of that. That's the point. Kids are vulnerable, unassuming. We might say it this way. They have an utter lack of adult-hardened self-reliance. They don't have the sophisticated, hardened self-reliance of the disciples when they're arguing over who's going to outrank whom in the kingdom. Children might talk about that for a fleeting moment in unsophisticated ways and not even know what they're talking about, but they don't care. They don't think about rank. They're unassuming. And so by analogy, it does fit, even what Matthew emphasized. Unless you come humbly to Christ, unless you come humbly to one another, unless you open yourself up to one another, you're not great. doesn't matter what you say. If you try to think about rank, it means nothing to God. So that's the first thing. They're unassuming. Jesus is using this as an analogy of someone who's unassuming. But the second part is, part is what Luke is really emphasizing, and that's that they're welcoming. They're welcoming. Jesus indicates by the analogy of the child that, that you have to be ready and open to receive Christ's agenda, what he wants. There's, a, there's an innocent willingness to the faith of a child. There's a, a sense of open, welcome humility about what's presented to them. Notice Jesus says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Look, you guys are all about rank, and so that means if you go down to Jerusalem and you're all about rank, you're going you're gonna to try to give the gospel to whom you think it goes to, and you're going to keep it from those whom you judge uh, unworthy, and that's another lesson that he teaches them in the next few verses. The whole point is you, you don't understand Christ's agenda. You're on your own agenda when you're talking about rank and who's going to be most important, and so you're not going to be welcoming. To follow Jesus is to open your arms to people not like you, to those that you deem earth, in an earthly sense unworthy, those that are unsophisticated, those that are of lowly state, those that aren't like you, those that you think that you're smarter than. The Christian life is about welcoming the gospel agenda, Christ's agenda. That's your soul desire. That's your life's pursuit. You're to accept it, welcome it. You're to welcome him as the preeminent one. You're to embrace his word as the authority. You're to embrace his unfolding will as your only life's purpose. You're to welcome all those embracing his gospel because they are the ones that he is saving. You're to give the gospel all over the earth like seed, just spread it. You're to be about his gospel interests, his gospel agenda. If you start talking about rank, you're starting to talk about delegated sovereignty. We don't have any delegated sovereignty. That's nonsense. We're not to make a case for ourselves in anything. Children don't come into circles and start giving pecking orders and ranks, not until they get into the adolescent years and they start becoming like we are. 
more sophisticated in their pride. Little children, huh, it doesn't matter what the person is wearing. It doesn't matter where the person's from. It doesn't, it doesn't, you've got a bright smile and a, oh, I'll take your hand, sure. You need to come unassuming and welcoming, Jesus says. And then he drives home the point. Because the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. There it is. The one who isn't worried about rank, the one who's deemed by everyone else to be of the lowest. That's the one whom God is looking for. Why? Because that is the one that he can use. The one who isn't trying to outrank or compare. The one who isn't arguing about making a case for their own greatness. True greatness, then, is bound up in knowing Christ and becoming swallowed up by the beauty of His holiness and His agenda and His purpose. Our staff is going through Thomas Brooks' Precious Remedies, one of the devices of Satan. Listen to this. He, he, Thomas Brooks says that Satan uses this device against the wise and the learned, or those who essentially think that they outrank somebody. And he says he, that Satan uses this device by moving them to pride themselves in their abilities and to despise men of greater grace but inferior abilities. So there it is. This is a device Satan uses to get you to look at yourself, think about rank, where you fit in, look at other people, compare yourself with them, and try to stand over them even though you don't look at the grace of their life. You're not even thinking about the spiritual maturity of their life. You're just looking at abilities as you assess them. He gives four remedies. Listen to these. First of all, here's how you remedy that situation and counterattack that, that temptation. First, you, you are to consider that men have nothing but what they have received, gifts as well as saving grace coming alike from Christ. So, look, rank? What? You, you didn't achieve any of it. Literally, we haven't achieved any of it. This is why it's mind-boggling to me how we can talk of the doctrines of grace and yet not have, as a church, the most humbled, unassuming, and welcoming environment. Why are we all about little subcultures and petty preferences and self-promotion if we're all about grace? Because the remedy against this prideful device is to consider that men have nothing but what they have received. Remedy number two, consider that men trusting in their abilities has been their utter ruin. Oh, yeah, I mean, you don't have to look around to see that. Just, 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 just surround you, let alone in human history. You start talking about your achievements. You start banking on them. It's not, it's not a sin to have achievements that other people recognize. It's wanting you yourself to be recognized for them. Hasn't that led then to every conceivable sin of pride that rushes into the heart and mind? Of course. And there isn't any one of us that, that has to look very far before we see that in humanity, let alone in the church. Remedy number three. Consider that you do not transcend others more in abilities than they do you in grace and holiness. <laughs> you do not transcend others more in abilities than they transcend you in grace and holiness. That's right, because if they're not worried about rank, they're above you in grace and holiness, and you are outranked by them spiritually. Remedy number four, 
Consider men who pride themselves on their gifts and set themselves against the saints, and they'll find that God blasts and withers their gifts. Huh. Thomas Brooks, soft speech. God blasts and withers your gifts when you try to talk about rank. Of course he does. God is not going to allow the disciples here to get down to Jerusalem when they've been chosen to be the, the spearheads if they're down there saying, hey, I'm the spearhead. No, you, you actually now aren't sharp. You're dull. The greatness of a person's usefulness is bound up in making Christ and his character preeminent in your, in your character and in your life. Making Christ known and on display. That's where greatness lies. That's what Jesus says. He who's least among you. In other words, you consider that person of no rank. Listen, in grace and holiness, that's what God looks at. I can't resist a quote from my mentor, John MacArthur. Listen to this. Sanctification is the progressive triumph of humility over pride by the power of the Holy Spirit. End quote. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sanctification, very simple. It is the progressive triumph of humility over pride. Greatness is next to smallness. Not self-loathing. Just not self at all. As we welcome Christ, we disappear. As we embrace his agenda and truly receive him, Jesus says, you receive the Father. It's an unbreakable chain. God is pleased. It's exactly what Jesus said in John 5. He who honors the Son honors the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. It's exactly what John chapter 3 said when John the Baptist said, look, it is absurd for me as a best man to highlight myself at the groom's wedding. That is nonsense. I am out of the picture, disappearing. All the light goes to the groom. He's, it's his day. All the light goes to Christ. I must what? Decrease. And he must increase. My greatness then is defined by how much Jesus Christ has made known in my life. That's it right there. That's the lesson the disciples were confused about. They shouldn't have been. They should have known that many times over. It should have humbled them not to have the faith enough to show victory and power over demons. They should have had, at that time, faith enough to come down from the mountain knowing that they didn't deserve the experience. They should have, when the, when the other disciples said, hey, what happened on the mountain? They should have said, listen, we've been forbidden to talk about it, and I'm telling you, I'm afraid for my heart because if what happened to me up there and what we heard um, can humble the pride of my heart, I want that to continue. I don't want it to be a camp experience. I want it to continue, guys. And then on the way to Capernaum, they start talking, saying, well, how come it gets to be you? Listen, guys, don't. Don't say that. It doesn't matter that it was us. It was nothing. It was nothing. We, we would have much more rather been down here because up there we're unworthy. Down here, we're just with you. Where we belong. We belong at the base of the mountain, not at the top of it. That's what they should have said. 
And the other nine should have said, yeah, you know, we got rebuked. You know why? Because we were down here angry about you being up there and we were supposed to be doing ministry of Jesus and we were supposed to be putting him on display and we weren't. We were down here complaining and yakking it up with the scribes and feeling our oats. We got owned because we were full of ourselves. And the Lord even had to point that out. We went to him and said, how come we couldn't do this? The Lord should have said, can't you troubleshoot your own problem? Don't you know how to counsel yourself? You didn't make much of me. You made much of you, and therefore unbelief grew. And even when the Lord said, what were you guys discussing? They should have said, oh, I'll tell you what we were discussing. We were discussing our rank, and it proves what you've been saying all along. We can't go one day's walk without getting wrapped up in ourselves. Don't even take us to Jerusalem. We don't need to go. We're not worthy to go. Find another 12 because we're not it. That would have made them more useful. And the Lord had to teach them, guys, greatness is unassuming. Greatness is humble. Greatness is believing. Greatness is not worried about rank. And greatness receives the lowly. Greatness embraces my agenda. Greatness goes anywhere to anyone the way I want you to. Why? Because I'm the one that you want to put on display, not yourselves. So what are we doing in our little subcultures in the church? I know we come from them. I know... It's a way of life to get thrown together into a church and to bring all our personal stuff with us. But here in the gospel ministry, all that personal stuff ought to get more and more swallowed up in the agenda of Christ. And we just embrace one another, receive one another, because when we do, we receive Christ. And when we receive Christ, we receive his Father. And when we receive the Father, we're doing his bidding. And that's how greatness is measured by God's standard. Unassuming, welcoming, humble, Believing. And it's sad because uh, even as John began to understand what Jesus was saying, he said, We tried to prevent somebody from casting out demons because he didn't follow along with us. And he's still somewhat confused. And Jesus says, Look, usefulness and fruitfulness comes from God's vision, not your own vision about ministry. And we'll see that next time. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for a humbling text where the disciples were debating as we would often debate and do. And thank you for the humbling illustration to come unassuming and vulnerable, humble and believing, welcoming and receiving following your bidding, doing your will, aligning with your kingdom agenda, and never, not even once, discussing how we might measure compared to others or where we might rank. What a foolish and wasteful exercise. And Lord, for all of the wonderful ways that you have poured out your grace upon the church in renewed love for the truth, 
I pray that we haven't already abandoned those things in great measure because somehow we think that we came into the kingdom for our own significance. If we have understood grace, then it should release our grip on rank, status, and trophies. It should make us embrace all the more just you, whatever you want, and keep us from the petty subcultures where we compare with one another. How foolish when, when we're to make everything of you. So as a church, help us to do that. As a ministry, up our out, gospel outreach to be only and always about your preeminence, your character, your love, your willingness, your mercy. And help us to disappear as to our own significance. Keep us from the devices of the evil one that would take us down that road. We pray for your glory and honor's sake. Amen.